0: Acts chapter 10 is where we're going to be this morning as we continue our series looking at the meals of Jesus. Um, we're going to read all of Acts chapter 10. It's 48 verses. So buckle up. I'm going to wander around just to kind of keep myself going. And look, it's a whole page at nine, nine point font. Um Hear God's word, Acts chapter 10, picking up at verse 1. If you don't have a Bible, it's up on the screen for you as well. Hear God's word. At Caesarea, there was a man named Cornelius, a centurion of what was known as the Italian cohort, a devout man who feared God with all his household, gave alms generously to the people and prayed continually to God. About the ninth hour of the day, he saw clearly in a vision an angel of God come in and say to him, Cornelius... And called out to ask whether Simon, who was called Peter, was lodging there. And while Peter was pondering the vision, the Spirit said to to him, Behold, three men are looking for you. Rise and go down and accompany them without hesitation, for I have sent them. And Peter went down to the men and said, I am the one you're looking for. What is the reason for your coming? And they said, Cornelius, a centurion, an upright and God-fearing man who is well-spoken of by the whole Jewish nation, was directed by a holy angel to send for you to come to his house and to hear what you have to say. So he invited the men to be his guests. The next day, he, Peter, rose and went away with them, and some of the brothers from Joppa accompanied him. And on the following day, they entered Caesarea. Caesarea. Cornelius was expecting them and had called them together to call together his relatives and close friends. And when Peter entered, Cornelius met him and fell down at his feet and worshiped him. But Peter lifted him up, saying, stand up, I too am a man. And as he talked with him, he went in and found many persons gathered. And he said to them, you yourselves know how unlawful it is for a Jew to associate with or to visit anyone of another nation." But God has shown me that I should not call any person common or unclean. So when I was sent for, I came without objection. I asked them, why you sent for me? And here is Cornelius' response. And Cornelius said in verse 30, "Four days ago about this hour I was praying in my house the ninth hour, and behold, a man stood before me in bright clothing and said, Cornelius, your prayer has been heard, and your alms have been remembered before God. Send therefore to Joppa and ask for Simon, who is called Peter." He is lodging in the house of a Simon, a tanner by the sea. So I sent for you at once and you have been kind enough to come. Now, therefore, we are all here in the presence of God to hear all that you have been commanded by the Lord. So Peter opened his mouth and said, Truly, I understand that God shows no partiality. But in every nation, anyone who fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him. As for the word that he sent to Israel, preaching good news of peace through Jesus Christ, he is Lord of all. You yourselves know what happened throughout all Judea, beginning from Galilee and after the baptism that John proclaimed, how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power. And he went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. And he commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that he is the one appointed by God to judge the living and the dead. To Him, all the prophets, bear witness that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. Now, while Peter was saying these things, the Holy Spirit fell on all who heard the word, and the believers from among the circumcised who had come with Peter were amazed, because the gift of the Holy Spirit was poured out even on the Gentiles. For they were hearing them speaking in tongues and extolling God. And then Peter declared, Can anyone withhold water for baptizing these people who have received the Holy Spirit just as we have? And he commanded them to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. Then they asked him to remain for some days. This ends the reading of God's holy, inerrant, and infallible word. May the grass wither and the flower fade. but May the word of our God stand forever. Well, meals, 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 um, food, drink, on, on the surface, are one of the most fundamental differentiations of cultures and ethnicities. Last week, I got back from India, and so for a full, I've been in India for a full week, and so guess what I ate in India? Japanese food. No, I ate Indian food, right? <laughs> We have all kinds of foods. We have Mexican food, we have Chinese food, we have Korean food and French food. We have Irish food, even though it's not any good. We have Polish food, we have Italian food, we have Indian food, we have Greek food, etc., etc., etc. And you know what is so great about American food is it involves all of those foods. And not just the food itself, but the the way meals are done can reflect the differences in cultures as well. In most places of the world, meals are slow. They're drawn-out affairs. Many have their big meal at lunch, while many others have their big meal late at night. Some use forks of all kinds of shape and sizes, <clears throat> French people. Others use chopsticks, and most use their hands. We can even see the differences in meals amongst, let's say, the microcultures within the broader American culture, Right? Some families eat McDonald's all the time, and other families are gluten-free, farm-raised, free-range chicken, organic-eating family. Some people are obsessed with the flavor of food, others with the health of food, and others with the cost of foods. And some are simply just obsessed with not having foods. But just as meals and food are on the surface, one of those things that differentiate between various groups, so also meals can become the entryway through which the various cultural barriers and life barriers and familial barriers in our life were broken down. Meals are the context, context in which contracts are made. Relationships are developed. Awkwardness is chased away. Meals are so very egalitarian. Everyone has to eat. Meals are the place where we gather to discuss, to grieve, and to celebrate and so it's no wonder that when God comes to Peter and calls him to saying Peter I want you to reach across ethnic lines to go and reach people of all nations and tribes and tongues to leave the Jewish people and go and communicate the gospel to Gentiles that the very center of that part of that call involves a meal a meal of of animals, a picnic blanket coming down out of heaven. And then the application of what Peter is supposed to do and carrying out his call to bring the gospel to bear to the Gentiles is done through meals immediately after Peter comes out of this vision and he hears of the men who are at the bottom of the gate. What does he do? He invites them in. And Peter has been waiting to do what? Why is he on the roof? He's out praying while he waits for lunch And so he invites them in, and he eats with them. And then he goes into the home of Gentiles. At the very center of the story As God calling Peter to reach the Gentiles through a a meal, and then calling Peter to the task of reaching Gentiles using the setting of meals. Meals bring mission, bring mission into the ordinary days of life. Here's the clear proposition that I have for you this morning. And then we're going to have three brief points. We're going to make the proposition quite clear. Actually, it was in India. And one of the things in my, in my, I was teaching Indian pastors how to preach was the class that we were teaching. And one of the things that I said to him is that your introduction should be very, very short because when you have a 15 minute introduction and then you get to the end of it and you finally get in your points and everyone realizes that was just the beginning, everybody internally groans, Well, I'm going to violate the very principle I share with those guys, and this morning we're going to have about a 15-minute introduction, but uh, we're going to, here's the proposition, the call I want to have for you this morning, and the proposition is this, that meals are the most effective setting for gospel mission. You heard about it already. I'm not going to belabor it too much here. You heard about it for a number of minutes. Meals are the most effective, simple, and ordinary way to break down barriers for the sake of gospel proclamation. Tim Chester is a church planner in England, and he wrote the book that we're basing this series off of. And he shares a number of accounts of how his church has used meals in order to engage others with the gospel. He tells about how his wife invited a particular colleague over on Saturday evenings because Saturday nights was their family takeout nights. And they began inviting this, this colleague over and they would have a couple Christian friends over to eat with them as well. And over the course of a couple weeks, they would share curry together and they would watch the UK version of American Idol. He said within a couple weeks of having meals with this colleague, that this woman began a Bible study with them. He shared about how one particular church that he was working with had the call and were in a particular area in England where there was a lot of Bengalis living, living, a lot of immigrants from the Bengali area of India. And people from the church would go and buy ingredients from the local Asian food store. They would go home and they would make a recipe from a Bengali cookbook. And then at the time when the store would close down, they would go back to the store, bringing their meals that they had prepared and tried out, and they would give them to the shopkeeper, and they would eat food together and discuss the Bible and Islam. On Sundays, they would break bread together and eat bread together with the local residents of the Bengali Association, and they would cook and show them how to cook English food while they would show them how to cook Asian foods. This doesn't just simply happen. We don't have to read about this in a book. We heard about how this happens in our own community. This has happened for years in our own church. There's a couple in our church that have, for years have been known, and in fact, I think they're known throughout the world, Dwight and Mary Fisher, as the the couple in Carrollton, Georgia, that if you wanted a meal on a Sunday afternoon, you would go to their house. When I first moved here, Dwight and Mary Fisher would simply walk into church on Sunday. They would look at whatever CO staff person happened to be there, and they would be like, I can take 10. I can take 10. Give me four sorority girls and three football players and three socially awkward kids and that's who we're having for lunch this Sunday. Admission was done around the meals on Sunday afternoon and the socially awkward kids were the ones on staff, by the way. None of those meals were anything, well, they were Mary Fisher cooking, so they were great, but meals don't have to be anything special. It doesn't require you to have special apologetic training to cook a meal and to feed people. You don't have to grasp the most latest missional jargon. When you combine a passion for Jesus with shared meals, you suddenly create potent opportunities for the gospel to take hold in people's lives. Jim Peterson, who wrote a book in the 1990s called Living Proof, talking about relational evangelism, said this, I know of no more effective environment for initiating evangelism than a dinner at home or at a quiet restaurant. These are all forms of mission that I've just shared with you in those stories. And these are all forms of mission that Jesus would recognize. They are the kinds of events he might have attended. For as we've already heard in this series, the Son of Man came what? Eating and drinking. So here's the question. We know this, right? Right? I mean, deep down, we know that if you want to engage in relationships with people, and if you want to get to know them, if you want to invest and love other people well, that you invite them into your home, you be hospitable to them, you feed them, and suddenly great relationships can spring up. We know this, but are we doing it? Is your life and your home and your meal schedule filled with opportunities to get to know colleagues and to have your children's friends over and to invite your neighbors into your house? Is this what you're spending your 21 meals a week doing? We know this. Perhaps we just need some encouragement to do so. I'm going to give you three encouragements, three challenges and encouragements from Acts chapter 10. There's not, we're not going to obviously deal with most of the things that Acts chapter 10 covers. This is a topical sermon. We're coming to Acts chapter 10 with a particular thought in mind. How does this text call us and challenge us and encourage us to use meals for the mission of the gospel in this world? And three ways, three things that they think this text points us to, to encourage us and challenge us and to call us to the boundary-crossing, barrier-crushing mission of meals. The first is this. The first word that Acts 10 gives us is that God is preparing hearts. So invite people into your home. God is preparing hearts. God is making preparations within the hearts of other people. This is the first part of Acts chapter 10, and verses 1 through 9. We see that Cornelius is this God-fearing man, but he doesn't necessarily know Jesus. It appears that Cornelius is seeking God, but in reality, what brings Cornelius ultimately to a saving knowledge of God is not his movement towards God, but is God's movement towards Cornelius. Cornelius is a really religious guy. He appears to be the one pursuing God, but ultimately it is God who pursues and prepares Cornelius' heart. In verse 29, Peter actually asks Cornelius this question. He says, Cornelius, can I ask you why in the world you sent for me? And what's Cornelius' answer? Is Cornelius' answer, I really need to find a new way to be saved. I was really struggling with my faith. No, Cornelius felt just fine about who he was. He was a guy who gave alms to the poor. He prayed all the time. He kind of understood about this Jewish God. He was a good dude. And yet the reason why Cornelius calls Peter and wants to hear the message of the gospel is because, what does Cornelius say? Because God came after me. God sent an angel and told me to invite you to my house it was God who comes in and prepares Cornelius' heart in his home and he intervenes into Cornelius' lovely, beautiful religious life and he gives him something so much greater. You see, so often after a person has become a Christian, And they look back, they realize that in all their years of quote-unquote searching for God, that they realize it was God who was actually after them. That God was the one searching for them. That he was chasing them down. C.S. Lewis talks about this in his own personal testimony. That he says that many people are explained to be agnostics who will talk cheerfully about man's search for God. And he says, that's who I was. Well, you might as well talk about a mouse who's searching for the cat. That's never the way it goes. It's always the cat that searches for the mouse. And the implication is this, is that we don't ultimately search for God. God is the one searching for us. God comes and prepares the heart of Cornelius. And the point that I want to point out to you here from this text is this is that brothers and sisters, brethren, there are those in your neighborhood and in your family and in your workplace and in your classes and on your child's baseball team whom God is preparing for you to invite into your home and for you to share the gospel with. Andy mentioned this book last week in his own sermon, Rosaria Butterfield, has a fabulous book on hospitality, that if you want to become convicted about the call to hospitality as the main form for mission, then you should read that book. But she shares about how in the course of developing a relationship with one neighbor, how the Lord developed in her this perspective of God's preparing and God's sovereign providential work. And she was out walking her dog along with a neighbor, and she had this interaction that she writes of with this particular neighbor. She said, Hank was her awkward neighbor next door who asked her this question one day on their walk. He said, Rosario, why are we friends? As they walked along while she was in the midst of a homeschool break with her wild and mangy dog. He was kind of disheveled. He had clearly just then gotten up out of bed around lunchtime to start his day. And Hank continued. He said, I don't understand why you hang out with me. I mean, most of the people in this neighborhood think I'm an eyesore and an oddball. So why do you hang out with me? She said, this is one of the things I loved about Hank. Hank was so antisocial and his social skills were so low bar that he didn't seem to understand when he was being overly direct and even downright offensive in the way he spoke. But she said, in that moment, the Lord provided her an answer. and She said this to him, because God never gets the address wrong. And in other words, her perspective was this, that Hank, if you live next to me, that God must have you next to me for a reason. That I you live next to me and I live next to you. And here's the truth of it, that God has prepared for you a domain, an area in this world where you live and work and play and God has put people there for you to engage with. Let me read you an account of something really beautiful this week. There are those that God is bringing into your life that you will stumble across. In fact, what we see here in this text in Acts chapter 10, Peter isn't even looking for it, and yet a Gentile, a man from another nation, comes into Peter's world, and again, Peter gets to engage him with the gospel. This happened this week in our own town. Let me read you a a quick email that I saw and got this week from John Hurst. John's one of our CO students uh, who's uh, committed to go overseas, but he was helping... Um, host a bunch of Chinese international students in the last couple of weeks, and he says this, quick praise update, just wanted to thank everyone who helped welcome the Chinese international students to America, we asked them what their favorite part about coming to America was, and they said meeting all of us, everyone who interacted with them really made a tremendous impact, so thank you. We were able to have a Bible study with them, and they also attended a Chinese church in Atlanta with a Chinese couple who lived there. One of the students got baptized on Easter. He felt led by the Spirit to do so. He says he has a new life with Jesus and said that he is going to start to going to church back in China and continue to read the Bible there. The gospel is going to reach the other side of the world, and we didn't even have to leave Carrollton. Praise the Lord. See, God has given you a domain and that domain may be Carrollton, and, people may, and it may be your neighborhood, and it may be your workplace. And guess what? People might bring people into that domain, into your sphere. And they may be from the other side of the world, and they may live across the streets. But your calling is to take advantage of that. By the way, I saw some of these interactions with some of our college students, with some of these Chinese international students who were here for a couple weeks. And you know what they were doing? They were eating together on the square, of course. What else would you expect them to do? See, God has said elsewhere in the scriptures, he said the field is ripe for the harvest. And God says, I have prepared the harvest for us. And the question for us is, perhaps all you need to do is prepare a meal and invite them in. Are you willing to do so? God is preparing a people. Second, understand this good word, and it's a challenging word from Acts chapter 10. That we should engage in the mission of meal making and inviting other people in because God is impartial towards hearts. All hearts of all peoples. Now here's where we have to do the heavy lifting, the kind of the, the things we gotta do, some explanation this morning from Acts chapter 10. This is a kind of an odd passage. We have a picnic table floating in the sky, coming down with some bizarre animals on it, and Peter is going, wait a second, these are unclean. What's going on here is that, that Peter is a good Jew. And in the Old Testament, God has separated the Jews as being special and set apart from the rest of humanity... Now, he did not choose the Israelite people because they were smarter or more superior in any way to anyone else. In fact, God tells them, if you go back and read Exodus and Leviticus and Numbers over and over and over again, and he reminds them throughout their history, he says, I didn't choose you because you were so special. In fact, in Ezekiel, he's going to describe them as a naked baby who was, just, who was left inside, beside the road, There was something grotesque, actually, about Israel when he found them. They were cast off, and yet he says, I chose you and set you apart. And he chose them because he wanted to demonstrate to the whole world and to all other nations the kind of relationship that God wants to have, not just with Israel, but with all peoples. And so he sets boundaries and a pattern of the way they're supposed to live and eat and do life that showed that they were different than the world around them. And so God puts intentional barriers between Jews and Gentiles, religious barriers and national barriers and cultural barriers. And God puts that barrier in place to protect his people, but also so that barrier was to reveal his holiness to the world. You know, the Israelites, all their practices about cleanliness and what they ate, all that was in order so that they may come to God in the temple. God didn't look at Israel and say, you guys are so special and so clean as a peach world naturally. No, he says, no, you're my people. And as part of my people, I'm going to give you rules as to how you clean yourself up to come to me. And then he says, by the way, if Gentiles want to come to know me, and the whole purpose of your existence as a nation is so that all the nations of the world may come and worship me, then you can show Gentiles how to get clean to come into my temple and worship me. There's various stories throughout the Old Testament of Gentiles who came into the people of Israel, came to become part of the people of God, and were able to join with God in the God's people in the temple. But in this call to be a separate and chosen people, Israel to be a blessing to the nations, to call other people to worship God. But over time, the people of Israel and in particular the religious leaders of Israel, began to see their eating and their cleansing religious practices not as a means of revealing the holiness of God, but as a sign of their personal superiority over all the other nations. Rabbinical Jewish laws often erred by not just taking the laws of the Old Testament, but then they would add hundreds of laws laws upon laws to keep people clean, to keep them away from anything that might make them unclean and keep them from being able to come into the temple. But the greatest error of the old rabbinical laws was this, was that they made it essentially illegal for Jews to have any contact with Gentiles. That to interact with Gentiles, to go in their home, to have anything to do with them would be to make a good Jew unclean and unfit for worship. Therefore, in order to be the very thing that Israel had to, God is calling them to be, which is to be the missionary agency of God in this world, they would have to violate the rabbinical laws. In fact, we actually see this sentiment in Peter's own words in Acts chapter 10, verse 28. What does he tell the Gentiles? He comes to Cornelius' house and he goes, you guys, of course, know that I'm not allowed to come into the house because if I come in the house, I am considered unclean simply by having any association with you. Now, one of the aspects of God's law that was supposed to keep the people of Israel separate was what they ate. There were certain foods that the people of God were not to eat, foods that were considered unclean and unsanitary in the way they were cooked. And yet, in Peter's vision, what it is, is there is a picnic blanket of all of these unclean foods coming down out of heaven, and God looks at Peter and he says, Peter, I want you to take and I want you to eat. But then God makes this declaration after Peter refuses to eat the food. Peter goes, no, I'm a good Jewish boy. I'm not going to touch these things. I'm not going to eat these things. But then God looks at him and says, listen, buddy, do not declare unclean what I have declared clean? Do not declare lesser what I have declared great? And actually, it takes three times of interaction between God and Peter. Three times God's got to command Peter to not call these foods unclean. In other words, what God is saying here is simply talking about, he's not simply talking about food here. He's telling Peter, and he's preparing him for the mission of going to the Gentiles. And he's saying, Peter, I'm not simply talking about food. I'm talking about people. That I don't want you to say, call Gentiles and all the peoples of the nations unclean. For I have declared them to be clean if they know Jesus Christ. Peter says this himself in Acts chapter 10 verse 28. Here's what it says. And he said to them, You yourselves know how unlawful it is for a Jew to associate with or to visit anyone of any other nation. But God has shown me that I should not call any person common or unclean. In other words, the whole blanket with unclean animals is not really about food, it's a meal, yes. But it's a meal pointing to something far greater, which is the cleanliness of all nations and all peoples that know Jesus Christ. In the gospel, in the work of Jesus, what God is communicating to Peter here is this, is the dividing wall between Jew and Gentile has been torn down because the gospel is for everyone and for every place. Everyone firmly will be on the same ground in the gospel, You see, what we see in the good news of Jesus Christ, and if you haven't, if you stop paying attention because that was kind of a little bit too narrow and intellectual and academic to walk through that, here's what I want you to get. The point is this, is that God is an impartial God. And you have an impartial gospel. Look at verses 34 and 35. So Peter opens his mouth and he's gonna communicate the gospel. He says this, truly I understand that God shows no partiality But in every nation, anyone who fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him. And then drop down to verse 43. To him, all the prophets bear witness that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. Do you see the words that he's using there? In verses 34, he says, I have so partiality to no one, in every nation, anyone who fears him. In verse 43, everyone who believes in him. It is not just the Jew, it is not just the Gentile, it is all peoples. You see, the gospel is for everyone in every nation without prejudice because the gospel tells us two important things. First, the gospel tells us this, that all of us, Jew and Gentile, are unclean because of our sin." That's what it tells us. In fact, this is the bad news this morning. The bad news of the gospel is this, is that you are unclean because of your sin, whether you're Jew or Gentile, and that Jesus is gonna judge us according to what we have done, whether we're religious or not, no matter your background or not. If you don't care about righteousness at all and ignore Christ, you will be found to be unrighteous, to be unacceptable, and unclean in the courts of heaven. And I want you to see that even men like Cornelius, who are give their money to the poor, who pray, who are quote-unquote God-fearers, they are seen as unclean without Jesus Christ I know that's true because God says that Cornelius needs to know Jesus and sends Peter to Cornelius to share with him the gospel. That means that no matter whether you have a religious background or an irreligious background, whether you've been a quote-unquote sinner or a saint, that if you don't have Jesus, you're unclean. And you're in desperately in need of the gospel. The gospel is the great equalizer because it tells us that we are all equally damned and equally unclean. But it also tells us the other thing, the other good news, doesn't it? It doesn't simply just tell us that we're all equally unclean. It also tells us that anyone can be cleansed. By the work of Jesus. The good news is that all who repent of their sins and trust in Christ alone, whether you're a Jew or Gentile, whether you have a religious background or an irreligious background, it doesn't matter, no matter the race or socioeconomic status, that if you trust in Jesus, you stand before God and he looks at you and he says, you are clean and you are beautiful and you're acceptable in my sight. And then he looks around the world and he says, "And anybody else who dares call you unacceptable, I will not abide by it. Don't call unclean what God has declared to be clean. And so let me ask you this, Christians. And this is the application. This is the difficult word this morning. This is the challenge piece of Acts chapter 10. Are there those to whom you are partial against? Are there those who if they were walked into this church, and in fact, if there are a particular socioeconomic or racial or type people group, that if they were to flood this church and take over this church in the sense of being the predominant culture in the church, that it would make you feel so uncomfortable that you wouldn't want to be here anymore. Are there certain people that you would rather not have in your home because they smell look a certain way or they look a certain way because they act a certain way? Way. Are you partial? Are you partial and are you, bar- are you building barriers and walls to the gospel when God has said to build tables? Rosaria Butterfield tells about another friend of hers. Their name is Ryan and Kristen. They have a house in a bad neighborhood. A- their house has a semi public space, it's a large carport that faces out on both sides of the house and it's visible from the streets, so and they call it the party patio. She says she's been to it. She prefers to call it a carpoint with Christmas lights. It's about as redneck and hoboken as you can look a place to be, but they use this space as an enormous kind of outdoor dining room. and has tables of all sorts, little tykes tables, patio tables, mismatched chairs, and one mighty cedar table that they built themselves. Ryan, she says, likes to say to his outdoor dining room, we build tables, not walls around here. There are no barriers to entering into this place. Is that your sentiment about your home, about your yard? I live in a neighborhood. I live in a neighborhood. They're all the yards and all are designed to essentially say this, stay off my lawn. The houses are set back behind trees. It's absolutely beautiful. And people must spend $10,000 a year on their yard. And I'm trying to keep up with them. And yet everything about it, their life looks so small and piddly and weak. It's so trite and empty because they have chosen to isolate and separate themselves from the world. I spent two weeks with Jim Whittle, and so he's rubbing off on me. Here's a quote from Jim. Jim said this Perhaps we need to begin to realize that the greatest barrier to evangelism is not the impurities and obstacles and barriers found in other people, but the greatest barrier might just be our own fear, prejudice, and hard heart towards other people. Which is the greater, greater barrier? Cornelius. Does he resist the gospel more, or does Peter resist taking the gospel to Cornelius more? One guy has to be asked once. The other guy's got to be asked three times. Who's more resistant? Who's more resistant? If we're going to be a people who invite others into our homes, and I might add, we should also, like Peter, be a people who accept invitations into other people's homes. It means that we must begin to set aside our cultural prejudices and our religious snobbery and our thinly veiled belief that we are better than others and that we must keep the view that we must keep our distance from others in order to keep ourselves clean and we must be willing to let the world throw a little bit of mud on us. So the question is how do you get there? How does your heart get there where you look at no one, the person who stinks and smells of a night out on the town? of your neighbor who's socially awkward and unshaven. Of, we have a neighbor, in our, 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 particularly a young man in our house, in our neighborhood, he's actually not a young man at all, he's 40 and he's mentally challenged. He actually, he walks around every afternoon in our neighborhood and he wears a sheriff's badge. And, and Trey, Trey is one of those guys, he's guileless. But Trey is a physically dominating dude and he shows up at our house every single day at nap time. And he's one of those guys who comes in and will ask for just about anything. And he's rather imposing. He knocks on our door and simply sometimes simply walks into our house without asking. Or if we are standing there in front of the door, he kind of eases his body constantly into you to the point that you're always doing this until the point you find yourself halfway through the living room and he's firmly entrenched into our house. This is Trey. It's the trays of the world. Are we going to invite in? How do you get there? Here's how you, how you get there. That you remember that you were unclean. That you were unclean. That you were running from God. That you were prodigals running from him. And that God came and he landed into your space. That he went running after you. And he pursued you. Harry Ironside, who was the second great minister at Moody Bible Institute in the early part of the 20th century. He was with his father while his father was dying, and his father kept muttering something as the family was gathered around his bedside, and they, they couldn't quite understand it. And so, but finally, they, they, someone got kind of close to his lips, and old Mr. Ironside was clearly thinking about the vision from Acts chapter 10 for some reason on his deathbed, because he kept saying this, a great sheet and wild beast, and then he would get stuck, and he would say, and... And 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 he would start over, a great sheet in wild beasts and 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 finally someone went bent down and whispered in his ear, and the old KJV version said and creeping things. And in his dying stupor, he said this: "Oh yes, that's how I got in. Just a poor, good-for-nothing creeping thing, but I got in, saved by grace." Whenever you see yourself not as the clean animal, but as the unclean animal, not as the attractive beast, but as the creeping thing, as one who is in desperate need of God's cleansing grace in your life, that as you get that and understand that, guess what begins to happen as you begin to invite other people to be cleansed with you. So that's the challenge word. Third, one last encouraging word as to why you should engage in the mission the barrier-breaking mission of meals, and that's because God is powerful to change hearts. This is the last section of Acts chapter 10. What happens? Peter shares the gospel very clearly, a very simplistic gospel message. Hey, he, Jesus came to earth. He died. He rose again from the dead, and you can be forgiven of your sins, and I'm here as a witness about to tell you about it. That's, that was the extent of it. And we tend to think that we have this problem in our lives as Christians often is we tend to think that there are those who aren't ready to hear the gospel, who may be too far gone. We think that unconsciously or who are just simply too resistant to the gospel right now. And this is an emphasis on the inadequacy of those to whom we are seeking to engage with the gospel. Or there's the other way. On the other hand, there are those that don't participate in the mission of meals because their focus is too much on themselves. They think, my home is not large enough. My cooking isn't good enough. Our finances don't stretch enough. Our cleanliness isn't clean enough. Our decor is not Joanna Gaines enough. My gospel presentation isn't polished enough. My apologetic arguments are not intellectual enough. And so what are they doing? They're not focusing on the, on the people to whom they're seeking to reach with the gospel. They're focusing on themselves and their own inadequacy. But those, both of these approaches are man-centered views. They are both lies from the enemy. They're from the pit of hell and they smell like smoke to keep us away from actually engaging with people. God's spirit, what changes people in this text? Is Peter's gospel presentation super elaborate? Can you remember this? Jesus came to earth, he died for my sins, he rose from my sins, and he offers forgiveness. Can you remember that? That's the extent of the most profound apostle's gospel presentation. And what happens? People's lives are transformed. Why? 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 Because God's spirit moves forth through simple gospel proclamation and changes both the poor and the rich, the Jew and the Gentile, those who are prodigals and the religious older brothers, the religious perfectionists and the prostitute. He saves government officials and he saves slaves. The gospel cuts into all areas, and it changes people. And Paul talks about this in Romans chapter 1, verses 16. He says, what changes people? It's the gospel. And Paul says, I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation. For whom? For the Jew and to the Greek for the Jew and the Gentile, the simple message of the forgiveness of sins, the promise of peace and restoration with God and an eternal home with God in heaven for all of eternity. That's the good news that changes people's lives. Understand this, it's amazing. It's amazing how far the American church has come from this, isn't it? The vast majority of Ben Weber's ministry fund budget is for food and hanging out with people. The vast majority of ministry budget for most churches is like huge events, huge events. But Jesus didn't come running projects, establishing ministries or creating great programs or putting on huge events. What did he do? He walked around on his feet and went to eat with people. And if you routinely share meals and you have a passion for Jesus, then you'll be, doing, you'll be on mission in your life as well. It's not the meals that save people. Don't get that wrong in this series. Meals don't save people. People are saved through the gospel message. But meals will create the natural opportunities with which you will actually share the gospel and it will resonate in a powerful way with those to whom you are speaking. Jim Peterson, who I referred to earlier, tells the story of his evangelistic encounters with a man named Mario with whom he had studied the Bible with four years before Mario became a Christian. The Bible studies reflected the fact that Mario was a Marxist intellectual who'd read all the leading Western philosophers. This is the type of person that we most fear engaging with as Christians, don't we? The person who we're afraid is going to outsmart us. Who we, when we think of evangelism, this is who we think we have to engage with. This is the type of person that terrifies us when we think of sharing the gospel. But listen to the rest of the story. He said after a couple years after Mario's conversion, he was spending some time with him, and they were reminiscing. And Jim asked him, do you know, or Mario said, do you know what it really was that made make the decision to come to Christianity? And Peterson thought of all their Bible studies and philosophical discussions And Mara's reply took him by the surprise, though. He said, remember the first time that I stepped in your house? We were on our way someplace together, and and I simply had a bowl of soup with you and your family. And as I sat there observing you and your wife and your children and how you related with each other, I asked myself, when will I have a relationship like this with my fiance? And when I realized that the answer was never, I concluded that that only the message of the gospel could produce such a life as I saw living out before me. In other words, It wasn't the great philosophical arguments. It wasn't the deep intellectual apologetics. It wasn't all of his deep biblical knowledge. It was actually living out the gospel in word and deed in a very simplistic way before this deep intellectual that led this man to Jesus. Meals from the first day of Jesus' mission to the day now are integral to the task of mission. And they're integral not because meals are so fabulous or profound, but because they're quite the opposite, right? But because they're so profoundly ordinary. Because guess what? You aren't seeking to engage the gospel with extraordinary people, but with very ordinary people like you and me. And so ordinary things are what is used to bring about ordinary people to an extraordinary gospel. This is where we live. And so the question is, will you take the encouragement of God's word and the challenge of God's word and live into it? Let me leave you with this as a vision for what we're we're moving into one day, as a means of adoring God as we end and close this morning. The vision of what Jesus is doing doing in this world, just to remind you for the call to break down barriers, to go to the nations, to invite people into your home. Here's what God the Father says to God the Son before God the Son has come to earth. In Isaiah 49, verse 6, he says this, It is too small a thing for you to be my servant to restore simply the tribes of Jacob and bring back those of Israel I have kept. Do you see that? He's saying that would be too small of a task. It's too small for us to simply keep our, our inner circle to a few good Christian people. It's too small of a task. He says, I will also make you a light for the Gentiles, that you may bring my salvation to the ends of the earth. And God says it's too small for me simply to save Israel. I'm going to save all peoples. From all backgrounds of all ethne. In Ezekiel chapter 47, there's actually, it gives us this vision of what's going to happen on this beautiful and great day when all the nations of the earth are going to be brought in. And here's the vision. That from the temple, there's this basin and it was the basin that everyone would use to cleanse themselves as they washed and got ready to enter into God's presence in the temple. And the vision of Ezekiel chapter 47 is this, is the basin is tipped over and the water begins to flow out of the temple and down the steps of the temple and out into the streets of Jerusalem and out of Jerusalem and moving towards the Dead Sea. But you know when you pour water out as it moves away from the object of where the water came from, it becomes thinner and less shallow, more shallow? Not this. The cleansing water that comes from the temple of God, it goes deeper and deeper and deeper until it moves towards the Dead Sea. Now, what do you know about the Dead Sea? The Dead Sea is dead, there's nothing living in it, it is salty. But the vision of Ezekiel chapter 47 is this, is the water flows out of Jerusalem into the Dead Sea, representing all the nations of the the world, and it cleanses the Dead Sea so that it becomes alive and vibrant. And the image of Ezekiel chapter 47 is this, is that all the peoples of the earth are cleansed by a flood of God's cleansing work in this world. And he brings those who were once considered unclean and those who were once dead and he brings them into his temple and he gathers them in and says, you are clean and you are mine. And that's the vision that we have in Revelation chapter 22. That one day God will gather all peoples and all ethne, all nations of all backgrounds into his presence. And guess what? You can be a part of that on a Tuesday night with tacos. That enormous vision can be can be addressed with tacos and beans and rice. Man, if that doesn't want to make you want to say praise God and amen, I don't know what will, because I love tacos. <laughs> and Jesus loves the nations. let Lord Jesus, we thank you for this vision that you would give us, that us, a people who are not really all that bright, we are so unbelievably, extraordinarily ordinary. And Lord, you've yet you've given us taste buds and you've given us a table. Oh Lord, I pray that King Shaffel, we would gather this vision. I pray that my own family would, would take hold of this vision of empty seats at the table to invite the broken, to invite the people whose lives look like Cornelius, who look like they have it all together, to invite the religious and the irreligious into our homes. To invite them in and share with them the good news of Jesus Christ. Man, God, what a great gift that you've given us to be a part of this work. And we thank you that it's not up to us. But the work is done by the power of your Holy Spirit. Who uses the most simple people and the most simple settings. To Jesus' name we pray. Amen.